Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. back on Behind the Knife. As a reminder, my name is Alexa Glenser. I'm a chief resident at UCSF. I will be doing a breast surgical oncology fellowship at MD Anderson starting next summer. I'm joined by two of my breast surgery attendings here at UCSF, Dr. Rita Mukhtar and Dr. Michael Alvarado. Today, we will be discussing the case of a patient with de novo metastatic breast cancer who has been responding well to systemic therapy and is interested in having her primary breast tumor resected. This is an increasingly common scenario we have been encountering, and we wanted to review the evidence that should inform the decision to operate on the primary tumor in patients with metastatic disease. I'll begin by introducing our hypothetical patient. She's a 45-year-old woman diagnosed one year ago with de novo hormone receptor positive, HER2-positive invasive ductal carcinoma that had unfortunately already spread beyond her breast to her liver and bones at the time of diagnosis. She was treated with Herceptin, Progetta, and Taxotere, and is currently only on Herceptin and Progetta to target her her two disease. While her liver and bone lesions have decreased substantially in size, her breast tumor has not. She is referred to you by her medical oncologist for consideration of resection of her primary tumor. Dr. Alvarado, how would you approach this patient in your clinic? Yeah, this is a challenging case. Thanks, Alexa, for that introduction. So, you know, de novo metastatic disease, um, it happens and it has happened in anywhere from 5 to 6% of all cases that are diagnosed. So so we have seen that for sure. And uh, in my practice over the last 15 years, I've seen a number of those patients. What's interesting is that with all of the newer systemic therapies, we're seeing much better responses. We're seeing patients do extremely well eradication of metastatic disease, and really the question comes up, you know, what do we do now? Now, of course, the patient's overall survival really depends on their response to systemic therapy and what's happening with those metastatic deposits. But as I was saying, with these newer targeted therapies, different chemotherapies, we're really seeing great responses, and we really start have to start thinking about whether we should operate on these patients. Now, classically, Patients with metastatic disease typically didn't have surgery for their local disease um, unless it was more of a palliative type of uh, process. So, you know, large masses, big bleeding tumors, uh, pain, for example. And so it was always thought to be palliative. But, you know, now with these newer therapies, we're starting to see more patients. The medical oncologists will send those patients to us to have the discussion about local therapy. So I think this is something that's really changed, especially over the last 15 years since I've been here. So, for example, for this patient that we're talking about, this um, 45-year-old woman with um, uh, both hormone receptor positive and HER2 positive disease, you know, really the things that I want to talk to with her when I see her is, first of all, you know, are you having any symptoms from this breast cancer? Has anything changed? Are you having any pain? You know, what does the primary tumor look like? Has it shrunk down to nothing? Is there anything palpable? And really think about really what the options would be for her. You know, could she just have a lumpectomy to eradicate any residual disease or to find out if there's any residual disease? Are there any lymph nodes that appear to be positive still? 
Could she just have a sentinel node procedure? Could she have a targeted sentinel node procedure? Kind of thinking about those aspects. And then also kind of talk to the patient about, you know, how she feels about the diagnosis and keeping the breast, keeping the intact breast, because there can be significant psychological factors as well. A lot of women want to have the primary area removed because it makes them feel like something else has been done. And it can be a psychological aspect as well, even though we want to make sure they realize that there's not a lot of great data to suggest that this patient's going to get any kind of benefit in terms of overall survival. Um, But it really is a a good discussion to have with the patient. Um, You know, there are theoretical aspects about removing the primary potentially decreases the possibility of seeding other sites. Um, But, you know, the data is pretty well mixed, um, as you know. Yeah, absolutely. I've heard that theory before, um, that the primary tumor could continue to seed new metastatic sites, which makes sense given the identification of cancer stem cells and circulating tumor cells. Um, There's also a theory that the primary tumor may contribute to immune suppression. But to move towards clinical data that's available. Dr. Mukhtar, what clinical data should inform our decision-making regarding operating on the primary breast tumor in the setting of metastatic disease? Thanks, Alexa. So there have been a number of retrospective analyses looking at this question, as well as several randomized control trials that have been done over the last um, 10 to 15 years or so. A lot of this work has actually been led by Dr. Seema Khan, And she actually published one of the first analyses um, 20 years ago from the National Cancer Database. And in that analysis, which included a very large number of patients, people who had surgery for the primary tumor in the setting of metastatic disease were found to have improved overall survival compared to people who did not have surgery. Um, Of course, the problem with these large data sets where you're looking retrospectively is that there's just a a huge amount of selection bias. So most likely surgeons were operating on patients who had a better likelihood of living longer, whether that was because of their um, tumor characteristics or disease burden or perhaps their age or um, other comorbid conditions that they may have had. So Pretty much all of the retrospective studies looking at this question have found a survival advantage associated with surgery, but they're all really limited by the fact that when you look retrospectively, you've got this selection bias and who ends up having surgery. So this is really why um, the randomized control trials are so important in addressing what is the real benefit of surgery in the setting of metastatic disease. Okay, great. Um, So in terms of the randomized trials, Dr. Alvarado, there are a few trials out there, um, some with conflicting data. What do you make of what we know so far? Yeah, great question. And Dr. Mukhtar really nailed it with that. Um, We'd had all these retrospective data sets, um, and then finally, these different randomized controlled trials. And um, one of them was the ECOG trial, the 2108 trial. Um, this was a clinical trial taking place both in the U.S. and Canada and has recently, recently been published. And this trial took de novo metastatic patients that had either improved or stable disease after four to eight months of systemic, systemic therapy. And then 
once they were deemed kind of proper candidates, so really kind of weeding out the patients that were progressing in this trial, those patients that had improved or stable disease after four to eight months of systemic therapy, they were randomized to either continuing systemic therapy or go ahead and do the localized uh, therapy. Now, the, the entire study was only made up of 256 patients, so it's not a lot. And there were stratifications based on the number of organ systems. So was it just bone disease? Was it bone and liver disease, uh, for example? It was also stratified according to hormone receptor status because, as we all know here, very different in terms of hormone receptor positive versus HER2 positive or HER2 negative, et cetera. And then also looking at treatment planned. Now, the primary endpoint was overall survival, but there were also secondary endpoints looking at both local control and something that's really important, I think, when you start thinking about this is also quality of life and how that was assessed by both the physicians um, and the patients. Now, that's just kind of a a broad uh, kind of um, idea of what the trial was about, Um, but I'm sure um, maybe you could give us a little bit more um, information, Alexa, on um, on the data and those patients themselves a little bit more the the the, the nitty gritty. Yeah, absolutely. So just to describe this cohort, like Dr. Alvarado said, it was a relatively small group of patients, 256 who were were randomized. These are patients who, importantly, all received four to eight months of systemic chemotherapy prior to randomization. Of those who were randomized, 70% of these women were postmenopausal, 30 were premenopausal. of them had hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease, 30% were HER2 positive, and only 8% were triple negative. 40% of the patients had metastatic disease limited to the the bone, which we know is a better prognostic factor compared to metastatic disease at multiple sites. Uh, 70% of patients had metastatic disease limited to a single site. 70% of those who underwent surgeries, they randomized to the surgical resection arm, underwent mastectomy, 30% underwent lumpectomy, and most patients also had a complete axillary lymph node dissection, regardless of whether they underwent mastectomy or lumpectomy. More than 50% of them underwent adjuvant radiation therapy as well. Dr. Mukhtar, what did the study demonstrate? Has it had an impact on your clinical practice or clinical practice nationally? How would you apply it to a patient like ours? Yeah, so the E2108 study is um, a really important study. And one of the things that's great about it is that um, the fact that patients actually had to have this period of systemic therapy before they were randomized makes it a lot more similar to what is done in clinical practice. So I think most surgeons, at least in our practice, would would want to um, kind of to make sure that there is a systemic therapy option that is going to be effective at controlling the disease burden before putting a patient through surgery. So I think that aspect of the trial is is important. Um, Systemic therapy was chosen by the medical oncologist, and so um, patients were getting kind of real-life optimal therapy, which is great. Um, Like many trials, I think that this one also shows the challenges of enrolling patients into trials. So originally, the target accrual was 660 patients. um, And this trial actually started, I think, around 2011 or so. 
And because of difficulties with accrual, the target accrual rate was actually decreased. And ultimately, the study had uh, was powered to be able to detect a 19% difference in overall survival between patients who were randomized to surgery versus continued systemic therapy. So the primary endpoint was overall survival at three years, and there actually was no difference in overall survival. So both the surgery group and the non-surgery group had um, overall survival rate of about 68% at three years. They also looked at specific subgroups, such as those with um, a single site of metastatic disease versus more sites of metastatic disease. Uh, They looked at different receptor subtypes, and there was no benefit of surgery in any of those subgroups. Interestingly, among patients who had triple negative disease, there was actually worse overall survival in those who had surgery. Of course, um, there were only 20 patients with triple negative disease, so we need to keep that in mind when looking at those results. There were some secondary endpoints from the trial that are also very interesting. One was uh, local regional progression, and the other was quality of life. In terms of local regional progression, there was a significant finding in that the surgery group had a much lower rate of local regional progression compared to the non-surgery group, and this was statistically significant. So in those who had surgery, the rate of local regional progression was 16%, and in those who did not have surgery, the rate was almost 40%. So that is something important to keep in mind, especially because I think you mentioned for this patient that the distant sites of disease had um, had had responded to systemic therapy, but the tumor in the breast had not. So I think local regional progression um, and our ability to control that with surgery is an important consideration. Um, in terms of quality of life, when they looked at different time points, at one of the time points, those who had Um, surgery actually had worse quality of life than those who did not. Um, But at the final time point, there was actually no difference. And at most of the time points, there was no difference. So I think the overall conclusion is that whether you have surgery or not does not seem to significantly impact quality of life. So I think um, the way that I might apply the trial results to this patient is Um, I would think about her risk of local progression, the fact that the tumor was not responding. Um, I I would want to think about how extensive would the surgery have to be, kind of like what Dr. Alvarado was saying. If it could be a lumpectomy, Um, that would be significantly less morbid than if she needed to have a mastectomy, in which case you would need to consider other things like reconstruction. Um, Other important considerations from the trial, so it is important if you are going to operate, it is important to achieve negative margin. So in E2108, having positive margins was associated with increased risk of local progression or local recurrence after surgery. So if you're going to do it, you do want to achieve negative margins and you do want to do kind of the complete local therapy, so lumpectomy with radiation um, if breast conservation is chosen. Okay, great. Thank you. So let's shift focus just a little bit. There have been three additional randomized controlled trials from around the world. Dr. Alvarado, what do you think of these other trials, and do you think they should factor into our decision-making? Yeah, you know, the other trials are interesting. Um, They've been presented and published, and there have been some criticisms uh, with with these in different areas. Um, You know, one of the larger ones was done uh, in India, uh, in Mumbai, um, similar to ECOG 2108, 
uh, patients received six to eight cycles of neoadjuvant type chemotherapy and were only randomized if their disease did not progress on systemic therapy. So similar to the ECOG 2108 study. Um, however, a little bit different, uh, these patients that were HER2 positive, um, they did not have access to Herceptin. So that makes it really difficult to assess, you know, any patient that was HER2 positive with regards to, you know, what the outcomes were going to be. But so that is a, a little bit of uh, a difference and really makes it questionable in, for those types of patients. Um, you know, 350 patients were randomized, so about the same size, a little bit bigger, uh, randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either continue systemic therapy or have surgical resection um, with the primary endpoint, again, being overall survival. In this uh, trial, the uh, the India trial, um, there was no significant difference in overall survival between the two arms. Um, but it, it is interesting that the overall survival of each arm was really significantly and dramatically lower than that of the ECOG study. So overall survival, 20 months in this arm versus 54 months uh, in the ECOG study. So really showing the differences uh, in healthcare environments uh, between uh, two uh, major um, uh, countries, um, you know, compared, you know, India versus, for example, the United States and Canada, where, for example, we have uh, access to things like HER2-targeted therapies. Um, also, uh, local regional treatment in the Indian study uh, in the Indian study also appeared to be slightly detrimental to distant progression-free survival. Patients who received local regional treatment had a distant progression-free survival of only 11 months compared to 20 months for those who remained on systemic therapy. So it kind of brings up this question that could it be that potentially going to surgery and stopping systemic therapy that, you know, the time of stopping systemic therapy for surgery, could that have a detrimental effect on these patients' overall survival? And, you know, it you know, it really depends on, you know, how long it takes to go to surgery, have the surgery, recovery. Are there certain reasons why those patients didn't get back on systemic therapy in terms of follow-up in that type of environment? So it's really hard to know, but it did seem that based on the data that they did worse if they went uh, to surgery with with regards to progression-free survival. So that was the trial from India um, but um, why don't you go ahead and give us uh, a little bit of information about the final two studies, if, if, you, yeah, if you don't Yeah, absolutely. Mind. So these final two studies are different um, from the, two, from the uh, Indian study and ECOG 2108, and that these final two studies randomize patients to either surgical resection of the primary tumor or systemic therapy from the outset. It, these trials did not build in a four- to eight-month period of systemic therapy prior to randomization. So these studies did not eliminate patients with the worst biology who would have progressed despite systemic therapy. The first study, uh, ABCSG28, or the positive study, was conducted in Austria and had a stratification scheme similar to uh, E2108. The study was stopped early due to poor accrual, so there were only 90 patients enrolled in the study. With follow-up of 60 months, there was no significant difference in overall survival or time to distant progression. The final study, MFO701, which was conducted in Turkey, randomized 274 patients, so similar in size to the 
um, American and uh, Indian studies, uh, randomized these patients one-to-one to either upfront surgical resection or systemic therapy. There was no stratification conducted based upon patient or tumor characteristics. As a result of the lack of stratification, there is a much higher proportion of patients with solitary metastases and without biopsy confirmation uh, even needed in the surgical resection arm. So that was 47% of the patients who underwent surgical resection versus 25% of those who uh, started on systemic therapy. Patients in the surgical resection arm are also more likely to be hormone receptor positive, less likely to be triple negative. So these patients on the surgical resection arm had more favorable biology, tumor biology. While the three-year overall survival did not differ between the two groups, there was a significant difference favoring the surgical resection group by 60 months. By 60 months, the overall survival in the surgical resection group was 42% compared to 24% in the systemic therapy group. However, this was largely attributed to differences in biology uh, between the two groups with improved survival in those with solitary bone mets, hormone receptor positive disease, and HER2 negative disease. Again, those characteristics um, were more prevalent among patients who underwent surgical resection. Um, However, the survival benefit persisted in the subset of hormone receptor positive patients. Dr. Mukhtar and Dr. Alvarado, how do you incorporate all of this data into your conversations with patients? How do you frame your recommendations? You know, when, if at all, do you offer surgical resection of the primary tumor in patients with metastatic breast cancer? Just to go back and reframe the discussion with our original patient in mind, she is a young woman, 45 years old, diagnosed a year ago with de novo hormone receptor positive, HER2 positive, invasive ductal carcinoma with both liver and bone metastases. The distant mets in her liver and her bones reduced in size on systemic therapy, but her primary tumor has not responded. The breast mass remains four centimeters in size on palpation. She is asymptomatic and she is clinically no negative. What would you recommend regarding a lumpectomy or mastectomy? And if she wants bilateral mastectomies or unilateral mastectomy, would you offer reconstruction, Dr. Mattar? So um, the data are complex, and I do think that we need to tailor our recommendations for individual patients, as in all things. Um, I, I think and it's, it's very important that the patient understands that there is probably not an overall survival benefit with having surgery. So there's a suggestion, as you mentioned, in the MF0701 study um, that perhaps surgery for the primary tumor is associated with better survival in certain subsets, maybe those with bone-only metastases or maybe those with hormone receptor positive disease. Um, However, the fact that the the randomization was unbalanced sort of makes you question the results of that study and the fact that we have another study that did not show that finding, more than one study that did not show that finding, also makes you question that. So I think we have to say that probably there is not an overall survival benefit, but it may remain an unanswered question in certain subtypes of breast cancer where we're probably never going to actually have statistical power to answer the question uh, more directly. But we do know that there is a clear benefit in terms of local progression. So as long as we can achieve local control without causing too much morbidity and without having the patient be off of systemic therapy for an unreasonable amount of time, 
I think that surgery, um, you know, is is a very reasonable thing to do. And, and as I mentioned before, especially in this case where it seems that the distant disease is well controlled and the local disease is um, is really not responding as well. So I think that I would probably offer um, a lumpectomy, sentinel lymph node biopsy, and um, and radiation. Um, if the patient wanted to have bilateral mastectomy or unilateral mastectomy with reconstruction, I think I would reiterate that we really don't expect any additional benefit from that additional surgery and that it would really only cause potential harm in terms of surgical complications um, as well as a longer period of time off of systemic therapy. So I think I would lean towards breast conservation if at all possible. So one question I did want to follow up on. You mentioned that you would offer her a sentinel lymph node biopsy. I can't help but feel like the horse is out of the barn, so to speak, in the sense that her disease is clearly already distant in her liver and her bones. What is the value of a sentinel node biopsy in her? Would you consider an axillary dissection? Is there value in doing that for local local disease control? So I think you make a very good point. And, um, you know, the sentinel node biopsy, for me, it's a little bit harder to justify. However, if we're going to go um, based on the E2108 trial, those patients had um, local therapy with you know therapeutic intent, so sort of had like the full the full local therapy, which included in in many of the patients, I think most of the patients actually a full axillary dissection. Um, I think one way to interpret the results of that study, one way would be to say. Well, surgery in the setting of metastatic disease does not improve overall survival. Therefore, you should not do it. But the other way that you could interpret the findings is you could say um, surgery in the setting of metastatic disease does not decrease people's quality of life, even though these people had axillary dissections, which is um, the surgical procedure that we usually think of you know, to be conferring the, the highest risk of morbidity. So it actually makes me feel more comfortable with the idea of um, operating and not causing harm. Um, for me, the, the reason to consider doing the sentinel node biopsy would be if we believe that what was done in E2108 led to decreased local regional progression. Um, I, I'm concerned that if we leave behind disease in the axilla, then the patient might develop with progress, progressive disease in the axilla. So to me, doing a sentinel node biopsy or removing, say, you know, gross disease in the axilla could maybe provide that local control with less morbidity than a full axillary dissection. But I, I do think that you make a good point and maybe omitting axillary surgery altogether if someone is clinically no negative you know, might be the way to go. I'd be interested actually in hearing what Dr. Alvarado thinks about the axilla in this setting. Yeah, no, I, I pre, everything you've said is, is, is great. I mean, from the very beginning when you're talking about what you would do for the patient, I think I completely agree with you. Um, I think there's a difference between palliative local surgery and local surgery for someone who's had a, a great response. So, of course, palliative surgery Typically, we probably wouldn't do any axillary surgery if it was because the breast was bleeding or there was a, a you know an area that was through the skin. You know, you're just trying to get fix that so they have a better quality of life. But when we start talking about patients that are going to have local 
regional therapy because we think they've done so well, I agree with Dr. Mukhtar that we should offer them kind of what we would normally do um, and for exactly what she said. So I feel strongly that <clears throat> if someone's going to have a lumpectomy that had metastatic disease before, then we should also offer them lumpectomy with radiation because that kind of is the standard of care for that kind of patient. But we should also offer them a sentinel node procedure because the radiation is going to depend on what the sentinel node is. So is it whole breast? Is it high tangents? And that's, as just as Dr. Mukhtar said, to decrease you know the risk of local regional progression or local regional disease. So I, I totally agree with that 100%. Um, not to say that, again, as she really said earlier, that it's a case-by-case basis. So it may be that the patient, we talk about it and they say, well, I really don't want my lymph nodes removed. I've, I've, had, I've heard about this. I've heard about that. Of course, you know, then we can have an open discussion about it. But I think a sentinel node procedure would be, would be adequate. Um, I typically would not do an axillary node dissection. Um, I wouldn't send a lymph node for frozen section um, because I personally don't think that the axillary node dissection is going to be beneficial, whereas the information may be beneficial in planning radiation treatment. So I think that's, that's, um, that's how I feel about, about managing the axilla. But I, I agree with everything that, um, that Dr. Mukhtar said. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean, certainly an axillary dissection is associated with a real risk of lymphedema, which has a huge impact on people's quality of life. Um, and you, you know, the disease has already spread systemically, so an axillary dissection is not going to give you that control. Versus the sentinel node, low-risk procedure, and can give you valuable information to shape the decision-making regarding radiation therapy. Okay, final question, and I'm going to ask each of you. Do you think there is value to conducting future randomized controlled trials that enroll only patients with bone metastases or oligometastatic disease, or patients like ours who had a primary tumor that increased in size despite her metastatic lesion shrinking on systemic therapy? I realize that the issue here may be the power of the trial and that we may not have enough patients to conduct a real randomized controlled trial of statistical significance. Yeah, no, I... I totally, absolutely. I mean, the hard part is, I mean, 250 patients, 300 patients, and those are really small trials to get enough like information that we would really feel comfortable with. So I, I think, I, I definitely think with regards to biology, I mean, you know, for example, in our own neoadjuvant, for, for example, neoadjuvant trials, it used to be all biologies, neoadjuvant. And then it's kind of like, okay, well, there's a big difference between estrogen positive and estrogen negative. And then, oh, there's a big difference between HER2 positive and HER2 negative. So I think maybe there is a way to look at, you know, more single type of biologies potentially with oligomastatic uh, disease or bone-only disease. Maybe, you know, if hormone receptor positive disease is the most common type of breast cancer, maybe start there, you know, with those patients because a lot of times um, they tend to have less complete response in the breast, for example, if they start out with disease. So maybe there could be some large cooperative group or, you know, um, I don't know, maybe a world (laughs) cooperative group, right? Looking at Europe and the U.S. or something like that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think we're doing it. I mean, that's the thing. We, I mean, I had a patient um, last week that, that I operated on, and I saw another patient this week that was referred from our oncologist 
you know, that had metastatic disease had a great response. So, I mean, I think we're doing it. We see the patients. If there was a way to get more information, um, I think I'd be open to it. But God, it's really hard these days to get big clinical trials and get them funded and do all that work, right? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I, I totally agree. I, I, I would love to see the results from a large randomized trial of surgery versus no surgery in exactly the group that you mentioned, the hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, bone metastases only. I, it, it would be very interesting to see those results. I, I don't know about the feasibility. I think one of the challenges with um, trials in the metastatic setting is that patients' courses are so unique, like the combination of the tumor type, patient features, the disease sites, um, the response to therapy or the lack of response to therapy. It's I think there's so many permutations that the patient population is going to be um, it's going to be hard, I think, to apply the results of a trial to every patient that you end up seeing in clinic. Um, I, I do just want to say, though, because, you know, with the case that you presented, the key thing for me was the distant metastases responding to therapy and the primary tumor not responding. And so, yeah, yeah, that makes a big difference. I think that if if the patient had been in a situation where the primary tumor was also responding and was very small, I think it's really hard to justify surgery with the data that we have. Because I think with the data that we have, the preponderance really show no overall survival benefit And so if the real benefit is for local control, well, if the systemic therapy is providing local control, then it's harder to justify any risk of surgery. And similarly, if you had presented a patient where the distant metastases were not responding to therapy, I think it's probably much more important for that patient to continue, um, you know, perhaps enrolling in a trial for a different systemic therapy option that might work better. Um, it, that would be, I think, of, uh, incre- of more importance than taking someone to surgery. So I do just want to make, uh, make those points as well. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thank you both so much, Dr. Mukhtar, Dr. Alvarado. And thank you to everyone for tuning in today. Thank you. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.